0: Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Listen to that. Children of the night. What music, Dave. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Eh? You wouldn't be able to do these awful things to me if I were not still in this chair. But you are, Blanche. You are in that chair. Who's in the box? It's the gun down, baby. Oh, no, what's in the box? Uh, the what's gun. in the box? The Wolves have a territorial range of about 300 miles and a kill range of 30. If we're close to their dam, and if we're within that radius, then they'll come after us. Well, how can we tell if we're close? We can't. What oh, in God's name are you talking about? Yes, son, Mr. Thornton. The son of the devil. they are he must die, Mr. Thorn. You do not want to go that way. What's that way? Officer, sir, you do not want to go that way. We're going to the mall. Hello, Dexter Morgan. Hello, welcome once again to Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews. This is Volume 2. Volume 1 was released last month under the Dark Discussions podcast feed, and so this one as, as well. Uh, what is Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews? Well, as anybody who listens to Dark Discussions podcast knows, uh, there's a segment called Terra Tantrums by author Patrick Lacey, which he takes a Blu-ray or disc from a boutique company, such as Screen Factory or Arrow, or Vinegar Syndrome, or whatnot, and then reviews the film, the disc, the extras, and the quality uh, of the product. And so uh, what happens is, is basically I have dozens of discs as well, and I decided to just start picking them up, watching them, and as I watch them, I would record a 15 to 20-minute review uh, and give background to the film, uh, so, folks who may be interested in finding maybe a drive in or a cult or a psychotronic classic uh, could go and uh, check them out uh, themselves and at least get a little uh, feedback from someone who has seen it, such as myself. Uh, the main thing is, is again, the boutique label. So, I basically will grab a Mondo Macabro or a Blue Underground or Vinegar Syndrome or a Criterion collection or something like that, and basically watch the disc. It doesn't have to be brand-new disc, uh, as some of uh, the Terra tantrum segments do, uh, but basically any uh, boutique, cult, grindhouse, uh, midnight movie, horror film, whatnot, uh, release from the past uh, could be as uh, brand-new as last month all the way to years ago, and then I just review it. Uh, the most important thing, in my opinion, is the quality of the print, um, as everybody knows, you can go to anywhere, Best Buy, Amazon, whatnot, and get a li- a disc of Blu-rays or or DVDs of films that are, in theory, uh, from the public domain or even uh, smaller companies that may uh, not have the, the power as a Paramount or Columbia. So things like Crown International Pictures or Robert, Roger Common's films or whatnot. And they're released, but the quality is terrible. They're basically uh, films that have been copied from a VCR or some lousy print, put on disc, and released to you. Usually they're cheap, and usually they're terrible. Uh, but a lot of people want these films in pristine quality as if it was released by a big company like a Columbia or a Paramount. Uh, So, for example, Screen Factory uh, has taken films like The Howling and released them in excellent print condition with dozens of extras giving the film uh, its just due. Uh, So uh, here, even if the film isn't necessarily as popular or famous as The Howling, uh, I still am going to review various films that may not be as popular and would be surprised to have a boutique release uh, but uh, all in all any film deserves uh, pristine quality print and uh, that's the most important thing and then of course the other things are the extras on the disc and uh, the price and where you can find them and so forth Uh, but the last thing I also do is a large background behind the film. Uh, I tried to talk about the actors, uh, the people who produced it, directed it, wrote it, um, the history and things of that nature. And uh, so uh, if uh, anybody who's looking for films to watch, uh, maybe Hidden Gems, uh, they may interest you, I am going to do, I think, six on this episode. Each was recorded uh, different days, basically, I watch a film. I'll either record it right after or record it a few days later when I have time and uh, 15 to 20 minutes a piece. Most of them are in excellent audio quality, you can hear me clearly though in a few there are some background uh, noises uh, because I did record them uh, while uh, the children, uh, my children were up and about Uh, but uh, shouldn't be a problem Uh, and with that uh, let's get into the reviews. I uh, don't know the order yet. I'm going to put it together after the fact, so uh, uh, we'll just start off with the first. Okay, this next film that I am going to do a review on is a film from 1964. So, this is one of the older films that I'm uh, basically uh, reviewing. However, it is most certainly a midnight or cult film in all ways. Uh, Technically, it's really a 1965 film, so let me uh, change that. Um, Now, uh, the film is called Motor Psycho. Motor Psycho. Um, Basically, it is a film uh, directed by someone named Russ Meyer. Or Russ Meyer. Uh, Rush Mayer is uh, a director that is well-known, uh, arguably as one of the p- most famous cult directors of all time. Uh, most of his films were uh, satires, uh, though he has had various um, uh, dabbles in uh, drama and things of that nature. Uh, th- this film, I guess you would call, as a a drama slash action uh midnight film um first off let's do the synopsis of this film and then we'll discuss uh the people behind and in front of the camera all right so this is the synopsis from the back of the dvd jacket this film is only available in the united states in dvd though i do believe um it may... No, no, actually, that's not true. It's it's only on DVD. Uh, so uh, here we go. Uh, three motorcycle-riding hoodlums, led by an ex-Vietnam medically discharged veteran named uh, Brahim, brutally beat on an unsuspecting fisherman before the eyes of his voluptuous wife and then proceed to physically assault her. Their voracious appetites for criminal violence still... Unsatisfied, they proceed to molest and terrorize Gail Maddox, the wife of Corey Maddox, a young veterinarian. Corey discovers his wife Gail brutally beaten and criminally assaulted when he returns home. Because of the indifferent attitude of the local sheriff, Corey decides to take the law into his own hands. This results in an exciting desert chase involving a lusty Cajun girl named Ruby Bonner and her murdered husband, Harry, incidentally by the same three hoodlums. Together, Corey and Ruby stalk the killers, eventually ending in a dead-end canyon called The Cauldron. Excitement runs rampant in this Russ Meyer film, along with plenty of violence and lust. All right, so um, w- the first thing is is that this film... Uh, like I said, was uh, directed by Russ Meyer. Russ Meyer was a really good friend of uh, the film critic Roger Ebert, where Roger Ebert actually wrote the screenplays for two of his films, a film called Up from uh, the mid to late 70s and a film called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, uh, both are midnight films. That film was uh, around the early 70s. Um, The thing that Russ Meyer is probably most well known for, and um, this this is... well-known, whether you're a film critic or a fan or just someone that knows film in general. Uh, everything that he does is around a uh, woman's breasts, so um, every woman that is cast in his films has a unique look. Uh, think of uh, Anita Eckberg or Marilyn Monroe on, um, on uh, Steroids. Uh, So uh, very much an hourglass figure, but not uh, thin like a Barbie doll, more of uh, the voluptuous uh, type of woman. Um, And uh, this is not my uh, personal opinion. This is a known fact and has been written many times about uh, Russ Meyer, his subject, uh, as a subject, and uh, has also been uh, studied in film classes uh, around um, various colleges, uh, especially in, in California. Uh, you can just do searches for that on Google and whatnot. Uh, so that's is what he's probably most well known for: a buxom woman in midnight films. Um, this this film here uh, uh, stars uh, a couple of handful of people. Uh, I'll name the cast. It's a very very small cast. Uh, it takes place in the California desert, uh, it's the rural area farming communities and so forth uh the star of the film is alex rocco alex rocco uh is probably most well known for uh playing mo green in uh the godfather uh he was an actor from boston uh was actually related to uh irish mob back in the day even though he was a italian he was part of the uh peripheral figure of the winter hill gang uh which was uh the gang of whitey bulger um and uh, he got out of that quickly and moved to Hollywood to be uh, go for his dream, which is uh, as an actor. He never made it huge. However, he did have a number of great roles in a lot of good midnight films along with um, an important role in one of the best films of all time, The Godfather. Uh, also starring in the film is uh, a woman named Haji, simply one word, H-A-J-I. Uh, again, most of the, the women uh, in his films were... Uh, either um, uh, uh, exotic dancers, uh, playboy playmates, um, pinup girls, things of that nature. Haji went by uh, the name uh, specifically because she at one time was an exotic dancer. Uh, She is what they call a Kando-American, an archaic term uh, that I saw online when I was looking up information about her for this review. Uh, which is basically a Canadian-American. Uh, she was uh, born in Quebec, uh, so she's a Quebec-Canadian, um, and uh, she obviously moved to the States to pursue a career in film. And she was in a number of cult films of importance, including Ross Meyer's next f- film, which is probably his most famous or possibly second most famous, depending on ret- uh, Return uh, of the Valley of the Dolls. Uh, beyond the Valley of the Dollars I'm sorry Uh, his next film after this was uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill and Haji was one of the three leads of that film Um, now uh, other folks in this film of of note uh, the other three buxom women that are important uh, in the roles are Asha Louise Alvazian uh, another woman named Sharon Lee and another woman uh, named um, uh, Holly Winters, uh, and uh, the f- the f- three of them did not have as uh, as big of a career as uh, Haji. Uh, they just had pretty much the one or two film roles uh, at this time, and then just kind of faded away. Uh, however, um, I could see, you can see why they were were picked for the roles because they do have the Russ Meyer. Uh, body type, and they are a um, fairly good looking woman. Um, the film is what we would call a part of the subgenre of uh, the motorcycle exploitation films. Uh, they say that the first could be argued is the Wild One back in the early 60s, starring Marlon Brando. Um, but a lot of folks actually say Motor Psycho is the first true example of the uh motorcycles exploitation films uh they usually c- come into two categories one is uh the outlawed motorcycle gang and then uh the other type is uh the wandering traveler um fighting against um the norm uh that would be like easy rider would be an example of of that um part of the subgenre of a subgenre um Now, this film here, a lot of folks say, was a preliminary film for uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill because basically there's three antagonists, all men, who are motorcycle folk, who are basically dirtbags. Um, And then in 1965, the following year, after this film was released, uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill was generally a similar film. Uh, but the antagonist motorcycle gang were all buxom women, uh, and that film is considered an important film in movie history, uh, probably for the fact of having three strong female woman antagonists, uh, not only being woman, but also, uh, being, um, I guess, uh, sexually desired woman. So showing power in all forms. Uh, so that film uh, is considered a classic in many ways and is loved by a lot of folk. Um, now, the, this film, back to this film here, uh, you could argue that um, this film had another thing that goes for it that was a first. And uh, the Vietnam War, which uh, started uh, in, the, in the, I guess, the early 60s, maybe even, even you could argue uh, in the late 50s, depending on... Um, how how you want to define uh the war because it was more of a police action but um by this time 1964 the war uh was was full on and uh this is the first portrayal of a a uh, character in film that has post traumatic stress from the Vietnam war uh so a- as we begin to see um when we get further into the late 60s and and most certainly the 70s and all the way into the 80s. uh, All these Vietnam War films and and folks having issues coming back. Uh, This actually was the first, or that's what they say. So you could argue that this was the first uh, film portraying Vietnam vet with post-traumatic stress as well as the first true um, cult motorcycle exploitation film. Um, Now other things of interest about this film um, let's get into some of the other things of note uh the first thing i would want to bring up is that one of the actors in the film is actually uh a uh some somewhat f- semi-famous um director um for for negative reasons uh basically uh there is a gentleman that plays um Haji's husband in the film, uh, the actor that plays Haraji's husband in the film. Um, His name is Coleman Francis. Coleman Francis was a a well-known character actor back in the day. However, uh, he is probably most famously known today for a horror film called The Beast of Yucca Flats from 1961, which he directed. And that film, Uh, oddly, is considered one of the worst uh, horror films of all times or, or just one of the worst films of all time and has been on um the, that show uh, the Mystery Science Theater 3000 um however uh, he uh, has has done many other things as well including um, uh, acting in numerous films prior to this film or even his 1961 effort directing The Beast of Yucca Flats um Now, uh, the film starts off pretty quick, uh, as stated in the back of a jacket, um, the actress, um, whose only role of note is this film, uh, louise Elvazian is, uh, sunbathing, uh, while her husband is fishing, um, and, uh, they get attacked by these three bikers, um, generally, it's... The Bakers act fairly normal at first, and then just slowly devolve into um evil chaos um out of the three there's they're they're curious folk uh one is definitely the leader, and then you have um a follower and then just a guy that's there just because he's there type of thing. So so there, there's the standard standard leader with two bozos um, with him, uh, and they just go along with whatever he says, whether it's good or whether it's bad, they just do whatever he says because that's just <laughs> the type of people they are. Um, there's very much uh, uh, shocking violence uh, to a woman in this film, though all off screen in a sense um, the attacks do occur there's two deaths of, of men um, and the at least two deaths of uh, innocence anyway and then um, the, the woman uh, they get basically sexually attacked and um, off screen have terrible things done to them as uh, you can imagine um, and and uh, the scenes that are drawn out prior to th- the horror that happens off screen uh, where the the criminals have the woman uh, and then Jay just kind of um, mentally abuse the people. Uh, which is an interesting thing because you, know, you say, okay, this is this is uh, one of those type of films. But uh, being a precursor to Faster Pussycat Kill Kill where the three women antagonists in that film uh do evil things they do the exact same thing to both men and and women in that film so these three bad guys in this film are just really just prototypes for the evil three women in faster pussycat kill kill uh where they do um mental abuse murder and then eventually um um, some rotten things to their victims, and uh, this is what happens here. Uh, being 1964, uh, this is off-screen. Um, also, um, Russ Meyer is known for um, a lot of nudity in his films. Uh, this film has only a brief, if if any, just for the fact that it is uh, an early exploitation f- film and, and not when he was in uh, full... Um, i guess uh po- po- post um uh whatever the mpa you know when when 1969 when everything just went to hell and everybody could do pretty much whatever they wanted uh this was obviously right before that um though there was a number of films that could break these rules and did break these rules back in the 60s in new york uh on 42nd street and in la um but um generally uh it wasn't um as prevalent. Um th- so uh that's so th- there's a tack, basically the the the, the uh, lead actor said it on the back jacket so I already read that. Um Alex Rocco's uh a veterinarian. He goes out to help uh this woman uh who's uh, supposedly has a one of her livestock that's ill. Uh this woman is strikingly uh, well endowed and uh, pretty good looking, as as all of Russ Meyer actresses are, and she attempts to um, seduce him, and uh, obviously he says no. But unfortunately, while this happens, his wife gets attacked, and that's that's pretty much um, the send off and in the beginning of of the film. Um, some of the things that are, are very interesting is. Um, the the police officer um when when the wife is taken away to the, the hospital um the police officer is the typical person that oh it's not a big deal um uh she'll be all right uh you know things of that nature basically not necessarily it's the woman's fault but but very inconsiderate and very uncaring for what happened to to, um, this uh, man's wife Um, and so you can imagine this has him go off and decide to do what he has to do which is try to find these bad guys on his own Uh, as the back jacket says uh, he meets up with um, uh, this woman Haji whose husband gets attacked and uh, the two uh, go off together um, it's some odd s- odd things about the film is that the two lead characters haji 's character and alice Rocco's character, even though they 're married and f- seem well you know one marriage is pretty good one 's just mediocre, yet both aren 't necessarily um, i guess i guess well placed in life in a sense they they aren 't enjoying their life generally so I don't know if there's a there's a lot of subtext i guess this film would be a really good film uh to um break out and try to figure out what it was trying to say because first of all there's there's the the fact that you have three psychos what has them decide to do what they do and what makes them tick uh then you have lead characters who don't seem necessarily happy um and yet um, they're on a mission, uh, but oddly it, it's at points it feels as if if their mission um, didn't work out, they would just give up and, and go a certain way, uh, even maybe together. So uh, there's a, there's a lot of um, I guess sexual dialogue between Haji's character and Alex Rocco's character, even though. Uh, One is married, and one has just become um, a a widow, uh, both from from the same uh, bad guys. One has had his wife raped, the other one had her husband killed. Um, Now, is is it a good film? Well, yes, I I think it was a pretty good film. Uh, I was actually interested. It does, oddly, it's a short film. It's only about an hour and 18 minutes. uh, It does, oddly, drag... Just for a bit, um, at the two third part, uh, which, which kind of surprised me. Um, but what it is is it focuses on the deterioration of the lead biker, um, and his mental state, and it kind of um, drags just a bit. Um, but prior to that, it moves really quick. And then, of course, the last 15 minutes is uh, is pretty quick as well because there's the big showdown in uh, the canyon, as it said on the back jacket cover. I'll read that once more. Uh, Together, Corey and Ruby stalk the killers, eventually ending in a dead-end canyon called The Cauldron. Um, now, um, would I recommend this film? Yes. Yeah, I, I think it has pretty much everything. Uh, anybody who would, would like um, cow Cal- thrillers uh midnight movie thrillers uh, it has uh gorgeous girls shocking violence psychological horror um and um an interesting um plot with a, a pretty cool showdown at the end um i did avoid watching the film for a while it's been on my stack of movies to watch for a while because um the advertisement for the film made it look more um like uh, a jolly good ride, you know, it uh, has a biker and a hot babe on the bike uh, riding around. Uh, so it doesn't look like a thrower at all based off of the the, the jacket, um, or, 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 the, or I should say the movie poster. Uh, but I was very much wrong. I discovered later that the movie poster was photoshopped, not photoshopped with technology today, but however they did it back in the day, uh, they took f- a photo of one of the woman, uh, that's in the film and, uh, and the lead biker, and they put them together on the bike, even though this never occurs. And both pictures are in the film, but in different context. So as a result, it makes it look like a fun biker film rather than a thrower. um, but most certainly, this is not a fun biker film at all. It is definitely a thrower. And you could argue, even though it was before the rating system, I would give it an R rating for the implied sexual violence that occurs to the woman. So to wrap up uh, the film itself, uh, presentation is excellent quality. Uh, it's uh, mastered. Um, on, on DVD uh, but it looks uh, brand new, uh, black and white film that is uh, high quality uh, audio and video uh, so it is um, not some crappy VHS burn or copy of the film so I uh, highly recommend uh, for buying the disc uh, because it will present the film uh, exactly the way that you would hope uh, a film that is a cult film would be presented not some crappy uh, illegal copy or burn copy or whatnot, but in a fine uh, digital quality that um, is uh, perfect for viewing on the big screen uh, big screen meaning uh, your large television uh, so uh, the place you can buy it is uh, at rM our R-M stands for Russ Meyer. Uh, the reason uh, I'm s- saying that you go there rather than elsewhere is because Russ Meyer Films, besides Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, all his films are actually owned by his estate, and uh, he just uh, passed away within the past uh, 8 to 10 years or so. Um, but uh, his estate, uh, which uh, includes uh, his family and whatnot, they own the rights to all his films except for the one, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Uh, so they sell his films directly through rmfilms.com. Uh, so that's where you would get the film. And uh, they do have various sales. Uh, mostly their, their films, unfortunately, are a little more expensive uh, than um, what you would hope. You know, sometimes they're up to twenty nine ninety nine. But um, especially during Black Friday, Christmas time, uh, you can find uh, the films there usually on sale. Uh, they have uh, deals during uh, um, Christmas and uh, Thanksgiving time uh, where you can get the films for half price at, at, at some cases. That's where how I got uh, my copy. It was a half price uh, sale from rmfilms.com. Uh, the film that I'm going to review is called Raw Force. Uh, Raw Force actually uh, went under some other titles back uh, in the day uh, and called Kung Fu Cannibals. Um, but uh, it's mostly known as Raw Force and um, has been uh, released on Blu-ray by Vinegar Syndrome on uh, October 2014 as Raw Force it's a more famous name um, this is a film that I picked up at a convention um, in Massachusetts uh, where uh, vinegar syndrome uh, especially in the New England or Northeastern area always has booths to and they always uh, sell their movies there and uh, you can get some really good deals through them uh, when you see them uh, at, at conventions um, Vinegar Syndrome is a company out of Connecticut, and they are one of the better companies, I would say, for boutique uh, DVD companies. Uh, not only do they remaster their own films and mostly Blu-rays, those in some cases they do DVDs, and those are still awesome as well. Um, but the main thing is they also do films for other companies so these other boutique companies i won't name who they are necessarily uh, but they um ship their films that they get to vinegar syndrome air vinegar syndrome does the remastering for them um for an, a fee so uh vinegar syndrome is a uh a very busy company they release five films every month um all genre or cult films and uh, oddly including um uh, adult blue films as well and uh but they also do uh the remastering of other uh boutique companies as well uh they are planning to open eventually a brick and mortar store uh in uh connecticut uh down on the New New uh, Long Island uh, Sound, uh, and so they're gonna they're gonna have a brick brick and mortar store maybe in 2017 uh, or maybe 2018. Uh, at least it's tentatively uh, scheduled to have such a store, and uh, that would be pretty cool. And they did say they would be selling not only Vinegar Syndrome uh, films but all cult films by any boutique company or major company for that matter, where um, cult fans can get. Um, discs in uh, films that they love, um, as well as memorabilia, and so forth. Um, this film here, Raw Force, is uh, one of the many films that were made in the Philippines. Um, it is actually uh, curious who produced it, but uh, we'll talk about that, and and uh, the director and all that in a moment, and who starred But uh, let me read the back jacket of the film uh, by Vinegar Syndrome. It says, Raw Force. Welcome to Warrior's Island, burial ground of disgraced martial arts masters. When the Burbank Kung Fu Club travels to this mysterious island, they quickly find themselves facing the bloodthirsty vengeance of flesh-ripping Kung Fu fighting zombies. Gun-toting white slave traders and a band of strange monks who may be the only key to explaining the madness. Edward Murphy's Raw Force is a virtual smorgasbord of over-the-top sleaze, mixing zombies, cannibals, outrageous action, gore, copious copious amounts of nudity, and starring exploitation greats Cameron Mitchell and Vic Diaz. Vinegar Syndrome presents this quintessential piece of early 80s sleaze, newly restored from the original camera-negative, and on Blu-ray for the very first time. Uh, The film is from 1982. Uh, This cut is the definitive cut of 86 minutes, uh, and it includes numerous um, extras, and we'll talk about them in a moment as well. But uh, let's first talk about uh, the folks behind the film. Um, Now, uh, the folks behind this film happen to be a few producers, but uh, the main one of note, the one that set up uh, a lot of it, um, was a guy named Lawrence Wollner. Lawrence Wollner, uh is very well known for a number of reasons. Um, he actually was part of uh, a group of brothers. Uh, the brothers happened to be named uh, the Wollner Brothers company uh is a releasing company uh, uh lawrence bernard and uh, david and uh, they released numerous great uh horror flicks and genre flicks of the past uh for example they were the people who released castle of blood uh the barber Steele film directed by uh antonio margariti um also um who directed Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye, which is discussed in this episode of Halloween Boutique uh, Psychotronic Reviews, Volume 2. They also did uh, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, the classic film that everybody uh, knows that starred uh, a number of uh, pretty important uh, Hollywood scream queens, including um, Allison Hayes and Yvette Vickers. Uh, They also did um, uh, the film um castle of the living dead uh the mario bava film blood and black lace uh they did um hercules in the haunted world as well as hercules conquers atlantis and hercules and the captive woman uh so they, they did a number of, of films of note besides raw force uh the director uh was an interesting individual he um did, did one of the things on the disc they interview him uh basically uh it's called destination warriors island a feature it with director ed murphy and cinematographer frank johnson and uh ed murphy was actually uh, a person that uh got a full scholarship to i forget which school but you can see it in that documentary um that was pretty prestigious but Uh, He decided to say no and instead went door-to-door to to various production companies until uh, he was able to get uh, an interview with uh, Lawrence Wollner, where he uh, was hired to direct this film. And he actually wrote it as well. Uh, The stars of the film are some of note. Uh, Let's let's go through them. Uh, One of the most interesting was basically um, Cameron Mitchell. Cameron Mitchell... uh, was actually one of the founders of the actors studio with uh, lee strasberg uh back in the day and um cameron mitchell unfortunately uh wasn't as um, a good of an actor as some so he was relegated a lot to um b films and he did many uh b films uh some of the interesting ones that you may uh, have heard of are um uh, as follows kill squad Uh, He also did Texas Lightning, he did um, Without Warning, Silent Scream, The Demon from 1979, The Two Box Murders, Um, Midnight Man, uh, The Klansman, uh, Slaughter, a lot of these films, as you can see, um, are midnight films that have been remastered and re-released by numerous boutique companies so a lot of these films are actually now available in pretty good uh definition um you know high uh high definition uh, releases um but uh the one reason uh you can see how he was brought back in by um uh, lawrence walner is the fact that he actually was one of uh, the actors in um Blood and Black Lace uh, which is uh, produced by uh, Lawrence Wollner so uh, that's why they brought him in and he was well enough known name that they wanted at least someone of note to be uh, lead in this film Uh, there's an interesting thing that he brought his uh, friend of his a woman into the film as well and he would only take the role if she was brought in so she got a major role another person of note in the film was Vic Diaz Vic Diaz was a Filipino actor uh, that was in numerous films by um roger Corman, um all the the prison films the women prison films uh back in the 70s and and so forth that um were done by roger carmen uh basically if you want to learn more about the filipino film industry there's an excellent documentary called machete maidens unleashed uh it used to be on um netflix I'm not sure if it's still there, but it's a, like an hour and a half to two hour documentary of the of all the horror and genre films made in the Philippines from uh, the late 60s to uh, the modern day, uh, specifically focusing on Roger Corman's films. Uh, this film here was a Filipino film, and that's why Vic Diaz was involved, um, and it was um, a, a film that was not done by Roger Corman however as as noted it was by uh, Lawrence Wollner um, uh, the, the reason I picked it up was I found out Vic Diaz was in it and that it was a Filipino uh, genre film uh, originally I was not interested in it because it looked like a kung fu film uh, however it is and by no means truly a kung fu mil- film it is a midnight film for sure it has horror elements uh, as well as women in prison elements it has a lot of different uh, elements of uh, midnight film. So there's a uh, sex exploitation, there's horror, there's women in prison, there's uh, kung fu, and uh, whatnot. Oh, oh, and of course the most important, there's zombies. This is a zombie film. Uh, basically, the plot is a group of white and Asian trade slave uh, people. Basically, they uh, kidnap a uh, woman, Asian and Caucasian woman. Uh, bring them to this island, Warrior Island, where they give them to these monks that happen to live there, uh, some sort of cult. Uh, Vic Diaz is the leader of this monk cult. And what they get in return by giving these women to uh, this cult, they get uh, jade. So it's basically trading, uh, slave traders basically, um, women for Jade, and uh, what happens is is that you get this group, this boat that uh, leaves uh, the U.S. Uh, a port in the U.S. and heads to this island to um, basically visit. Um, uh, it's a cruise, basically, you know, vi- visit and whatnot. And and what it is is that this karate kung fu team happens to be on the boat, and they head to uh, Warrior Island because they want to check out. This, um, this island that has, uh, the, the graves of numerous, uh, martial art masters that have been disgraced, you know, curiosity and whatnot. And, uh, what happens is, is the slave traders find out that this boat is heading there. They don't want their, uh, slave trade for jade ruined. So they want to, uh, prevent the boat from getting there. And, uh, that's, that's basically the plot. The film, uh, is is filled with nudity, it's crazy um, a, a lot of violence too, kung fu violence so it's more tongue in cheek The violence um, basically there's some interesting cameos in this film uh, one of them is Jewel Shepard Jewel Shepard was uh, the punk girl uh, in uh, Return of the Living Dead um, and uh, she's also known for a film called Christine uh, she was good friends with Dan O'Bannon, um, the director of *Return of the Living Dead*, and uh, he actually wanted her to start as um, the trash role in that film, but she didn't want to because she thought, um, at that time in her career, she didn't want to do it, uh, any more nudity and she wanted to try to get uh, more known for acting, and so uh, she was. Uh, cast as uh, the other punk girl in the film, um, but um, one of her more famous films is Christina, and she was in My Tutor, um, which uh, all have been remastered and are now available uh, out um, on Blu-ray and whatnot. Uh, Hollywood Hot Tubs she was in as well, uh, but another interesting uh, cameo was by um, uh, the actress. That starred in I Spit on Your Grave. That's right. Camille Keaton has a role in this film as well where she uh, plays uh, a drinking girl um, and, at this party scene on the boat. So both uh, Jewel Shepard and Camille Keaton play uh, um, actresses that are a part of this party scene that's on the boat, uh, which is – they both uh, – get naked uh so there's there's a lot of exploitation midnight elements to this film um i'm actually um glad i purchased it because it is a lot of fun it's 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 a great film didn't keep me bored at all i mean it's obviously a, a b film and a midnight film but total um total fun film uh it's got zombies it's got everything that you uh would want in a midnight film um the price for it where you can find it obviously you can find it from uh vinegar syndrome.com and uh get it there but uh Amazon actually is selling it now for $14.99 uh which is pretty damn good uh because originally it was released as a 20 something 25 26 dollar a film. Then it went down to uh, the nominal $18.99 or so. But now they're selling it for uh, $14.99 on Amazon. And it is uh, a dual Blu-ray and DVD combo disc. Um, so it's definitely uh, uh, a pretty good pickup uh, for, for the money. Um, and, again, it's a damn good fun film. And it has some really good cameos, as I mentioned. Uh, plus... Um, The movie is packed with uh, everything you want. Uh, The zombies are pretty cool. Um, Vic Diaz choose his scream time like like, uh, you would expect, if you're familiar with him, as uh, one of the uh, guards in uh, the Woman in Cage films by Roger Corman, such as uh, the Big Bird cage he was in. And he was in... um, um, black mama white mama you know these pam, pam grier films basically he was in uh, night of the crover woman he was in beast of the yellow knight bloodthirst uh daughters of satan um savage sisters i mean you know he's, he was in all of them all the big films back in those days um what other things of note about this film um well, not, not much more. I mean, it, this is a pretty short review compared to some of my other reviews on Halloween Boutique Psychotronic reviews. But uh, uh, it's generally um, the plot synopsis I gave and then just action and nudity straight from uh, beginning to end. And, uh, yeah, that's it. Um, so, there, it, oddly, there, there's a, at the end of the film, it says to be continued, though uh, the film does wrap up uh, correctly with a fine ending um, but originally they were planning to make a part two and uh, that actually just never got made uh, Further items of interest on the, this film uh, there's actually uh, as I said uh, a uh, short featurette called Destination Warriors Island featurette with director Ed Murphy and cinematographer Frank Johnson Uh, but there is an audio interview with finishing editor Jim Wynorski Jim Wynorski well-known cult director that worked with Roger Corman as well as among other folks uh, done a lot of exploitation and horror films including Chopping Mall which actually has just been re-released on Blu-ray in 2016 Q4 uh, but uh, what was interesting and he's uncredited here is he actually recut the entire film because the original cut of the film before it was released to the general public uh, was not well received by uh, viewing audiences um, critique audiences so they brought in Jim Ornorski um, and he actually recut the film to its final cut that you see here and um uh, he did a great job because uh, in its uh, running time of 86 minutes, it is nonstop uh, horror, uh, comedy, comedy as in more tongue-in-cheek, not not slapstick, um, and exploitation elements. Um, if for if you, the definition of midnight film or genre film, this is the film, and I think that's the reason why. Uh, I like it so much because it was a pleasant surprise because I thought it was just going to be a kung fu film. Uh, High recommend and uh, uh, worth checking out. The film that I am going to review now is called Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye. Uh, This is a... Blue Underground release uh, the boutique company Blue Underground which is a company that was formed by William Lustig William Lustig is a director of horror films and uh, his probably his most famous is uh, Maniac uh, and that was a uh, slasher film from the early 80's uh, starring Joe Spinell um, he then uh, at one time was working for Anchor Bay And then after a period of time went off and opened up his own company, uh, once again called Blue Underground. Blue Underground is one of the older boutique companies and arguably one of the better boutique companies since they continuously put out excellent product, um, and are now releasing some really big, uh, releases on Blu-ray so uh, I recommend for that company and uh, it appears monthly they release new uh, discs Uh, this here is one of their older discs Uh, it was actually released back in October of 2005 it at this time is only a disc that has been uh, put out on DVD it is not Uh, been upgraded to Blu-ray but uh, the transfer I can say is still excellent. It is a fairly inexpensive disc at this point Uh, it is only uh, $9.99 if purchased through Amazon so uh, that's a fairly good price for a film with a number of extras as well. So to read the back jacket of the disc uh, this is what it has to say. International sex symbol Jane Birkin, uh, from the film Blow Up, stars as Coringa, a beautiful young girl who returns from a convent school to her family's ancestral castle, but within these walls seethes unspeakable evil, including religious fervor, depraved desires, and sudden sadistic murder. Now someone with a taste for terror is slaughtering the castle's demented guests Six have already met their deaths, and for delicious Coringa, the ultimate torment is still to come. Anton Differing, from Circus of Horrors, Hiram Keller, from Fellini's Satyricon, and infamous French superstar Serge Gansborg, co-star in this luridly gothic giallo, co-written and directed by Antonio Margheriti. Uh, Cannibal, Apocalypse, and Castle of Blood, featuring an intense score by Riz Ortolani Mondo Kane, and presented uncut, uncensored, and fully restored from original European vault materials. Uh, So, yeah, they claim that this is a giallo, and with the name Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye, one would probably think so. However, this is more a, a horror gothic Tale in the mode of a hammer film than an actual Giallo. Uh, for folks who don't know what I'm talking about when I say Giallo, though many who listen to uh, the Dark Discussions podcast uh, probably do, I will just do a it quick synopsis. An and basically, a Giallo is the Italian version, and in sometimes uh, other European continental nations as well, such as Greece and Spain, uh, their take on the slasher film and uh, basically giallo I believe means yellow in Italian because back in the 50s and 60s there were these lurid uh, murder mysteries and paperback that all used to have um, yellow covers uh, on on uh, the book jacket and so when they were transferred to film or films that were made that represented that type of genre they were simply called giallo films and many of them had very odd titles very long titles and uh, in this case seven deaths in the cat's eye and um, some would say that they are the first slasher films and uh, I would agree with that statement though some will say Halloween by John Carpenter or even Black Christmas by uh, Clark Bob Clark uh, the first slashes um i would state that is not the case and the true first slashes were uh, the italian and european giallos that occurred in the 60s and early uh, 70s however uh, one could even go back and say uh alfred hitchcock's 1960 uh early 60 psycho which actually even predated uh the first giallos by one or two years uh, was the first slasher, and I, actually I would probably agree with that, that Psycho is the true first slasher. Um, now, uh, this here, though, is uh, even though it's it's I, I guess marketed and titled as a giallo, it really is, as I stated, more of a gothic horror film in the mode of Hammer. Um, it is an Italian film, as I stated, uh, it's directed by uh, Antonio Margariti uh, under the the English uh, surname of, uh, or name period, of Anthony M. Dawson. Uh, There's an interesting story by that, which is actually portrayed in one of the extras on the disc. Uh, Antonio Margariti, um, when he did films that were being marketed to uh, non, uh, or I should say, English-speaking nations, uh, they decided to anglicize his name. And when they did that, uh, it was Anthony Daisies, and they said Daisies wouldn't work. Um, it sounded too feminine, so they changed it to Dawson, and then they added the middle initial M, simply for the fact that he um, would have been mistaken to be an actor because there was an actor already out called Anthony Dawson. Uh, so Anthony M. Dawson uh, was... How this film was marketed, though uh, the director is Antonio Margheriti. Uh, Antonio Margheriti uh, did numerous films, horror films, uh, with Barbara Steele and Christopher Lee. Uh, so basically, uh, a lot of English actors would go to Italy and do horror films in the mode of uh, Hammer uh, in Italy. And uh, Antonio Margher Rieti was one of the more successful uh, horror directors of that time, meaning the mid to late 60s. And then this film here, uh, Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye, um, as it extended into the 70s, kept that mode uh, that uh, he was familiar with directing, even though it was being marketed as a giallo. Uh, this film actually came out in 1973, and it had a pretty big cast as I mentioned. Uh, some other interesting folks in the cast is a guy named Venantino Venantini, who uh, was in a number of uh, uh, Jess Franco horror films, uh, usually played a bad guy, um, as well as those folks that I already named, including Jane Birkin, Hiram Keller. Uh, Serge Gainsbourg and, and another person of interest too was uh, Doris Kunzman um, and uh, basically um, the synopsis of the film uh, to get in better detail than what was on the back of the cover um, this film, even though it's an Italian film um, takes place in Scotland uh, the family McGrief uh, is the name of the family uh, they own this castle and um, and uh the the person that's that owns it lady mcgrief uh is basically bankrupt she has a son that is considered mentally unstable uh he had murdered um his sister or not necessarily murdered intentionally but um mysterious things occurred where his young sister when they were children uh, died And uh, he was blamed, and since then he's been a bit unstable. Um, This woman, Lady McGrief, is losing her castle um, because of financial issues. Her sister, another wealthy McGrief, comes to visit with her daughter. Uh, The daughter is played by Jane Birkin. And they uh, tr- basically um, try to convince her to sell the castle. But, of course, um, she does not want to do that. Um, during this time, someone in the family uh, is murdered um, or, or, or actually dies. They, they claim that she dies. But when her body disappears from the grave, an old myth of those who are murdered by a family member turned into vampires. So they begin, at least uh, the Jane Birkin character, um, begins to believe that the member of the family that has died has come back as a vampire. Uh, There's a couple other folks uh, that happen to be important to the plot. Uh, There's a priest, a Catholic priest, since um, Scotland is usually or mostly a Presbyterian nation, um, there's not Catholics are, are basically a minority and the chapel or the Catholic chapel in this area of the country it happens to be uh, within the castle of the McGriffs so what we have is a priest that basically lives on the premise Um and uh, the McGrief's happen to be Catholic themselves uh, since uh, it used to be a Catholic nation prior to the conversion of the country by um, the English monarchy Um, then there is a French teacher there to basically to teach French to um, Lady McGrief's son uh, the mentally unstable son and then there is a doctor who uh, lives on premise as well he happens to have been uh, the doctor of the family personal doctor for over 30 years and um, has resided in the castle for that long Uh, so what happens is is when one of the member of the family dies um, various other people begin to get knocked off as well and the question is, is there a murderer, or has the family um, been cursed with a vampire curse? Um, and and that's, that's, that's the plot. Um, of course, uh, the superstitious folk, um, which is uh, the Jane Birkin character, um, believe it is vampires, but most of the other folks, including the local constable, believes it is a murderer um, and whether it is one of the members of uh, the residence or guests of the castle or whether it is an unknown uh, murderer from the past, we, we just don't know. Um, so that's that's the plot. Uh, now, is it a good story? Um, I would say it was very interesting. Um, I, unfortunately, was going in thinking it was going to be a jalo, so a slasher film. Um, so that was was a bit shocking to find out that, no, it is in no way a giallo even though there are people being knocked off Um, however I did enjoy it a lot because I do like also the the gothic horror films of Hammer and the old Italian gothic horror films as well so um, it is a good horror film Uh, it does have uh, some exploitation elements Um, obviously there's there's deaths and uh, there is some nudity uh, female nudity Uh, So anybody for the midnight crowd would also enjoy it um, or expecting uh, these things in a European horror film. uh, This European horror film, if more tame than some, it does have those elements. Uh, Now, I want to talk about some of the folks behind the film because there's a lot of curiosity of uh, the people behind the film and in front of the the camera. I did talk about the director, um, Antonio Margheriti. He is a very well-known genre director. Uh, some of his films and um, are actually widely available, uh, have been remastered and such. As. One is Castle of Blood starring um, Barbara Steele, the, the famous English uh, horror actress, scream queen. Uh, the Long Hero of Death. Um, there's uh, some sp- space films they did or, or science fiction films that he did, uh, including Wild Wild Planet, uh, which you can find on uh, disc. Uh, Cannibal Apocalypse, The Virgin of Nuremberg, which is a, the film that stars Christopher Lee. Uh, another giallo called Naked You Die, um, which is uh, one of the more uh, interesting titles, I would say, and has actually a pretty cool DVD cover. That one, I think, may be out of print, but still available uh, by third-party sellers on Amazon. Um, he also did Killer Fish, which actually starred... Um, um, uh, the great uh, Margot Hemingway, uh, which uh, people uh, may know as the granddaughter of um, uh, Hemingway, the author, and uh, she actually had some pretty damn good roles and i've always thought she was a great actress. she unfortunately died young uh Karen Black was in that film as well as well as uh, Lee Majors. That film actually just came out on Blu-ray a couple of months ago, completely remastered. Uh, it's been on my radar to possibly pick up. Um, seemed pretty interesting to me, specifically probably um, during our uh, Killer Fish Fest uh, Dark Discussions podcast that we did back in the fall of 2016, just a couple of months ago. Uh, it came out just around then, and it was one of the films that I was considering as possible uh, topic and um I'm also on a uh, Margot Hemingway kick at the moment i've just seen a couple of her other films uh, including uh, Lipstick, which was a pretty damn good thrower um, so uh, that's a film that i'm I'm potentially going to uh, check out at some point um, now the other folks of interest that I wanted to bring up about this film include uh, first off the lead actress uh, which is uh, Jane Birkin as I said um, she happens to be the the lead. She's the, the woman in the film that believes the vampires are coming. Um, the interest, uh, the reason that she's uh, a curiosity of interest is uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, first off, she was a huge um, model prior to getting into acting. And um, she's a daughter of uh, the actress Judy Campbell and a uh, father was a military hero in world war ii um her brother actually became a screenwriter and director uh andrew birkin um the interesting thing about her here is that uh she became a counterculture, i guess uh similar to like twiggy that type of fame Um, and uh, actually was in uh, the great film Blow Up. That was a big film in the 1960s uh, that's actually getting a re-release on Criterion in about two or three years from now. So I mean, two or three years, two or three months from now. So uh, by the end of Q1 of 2017, look for Criterion's Blow Up uh, starring uh, Jane Birkin. Uh, A couple of things of note. Besides that is that she actually was the common law wife of the actor that played the constable in this film. And uh, again, the constable was played by Serge Gainsbourg, who is a huge singer. He's passed away now, but he was a huge singer um, in uh, France. And um, so I I don't know how to compare him to, say, uh, someone in the U.S., uh, or England that people would know, but I, I would assume that he was in the same league as like a Dean Martin or something like that. And, uh, he's still well known today and loved, even though he has passed. Um, they had a daughter, uh, named Charlotte Gainsbourg. And yes, that's the same Charlotte Gainsbourg that is in the films. Nymphomaniac by Lars von Trier. Uh, so, you know, it's a lot of six degrees to separation here. um, Oddly, though, uh, Jane Birkin, one of her most notable things of fame, happened to be the fact that the Birkin bag, which are these huge bags that you can find everywhere. All women wear them or, or carry them nowadays, uh, or at least uh, faux or cheaper versions. Um, the, the You can actually even find them pretty much at any outlet. Uh, complex there's always Birkin bag stores and such and basically what it was is uh, she sat next to this this um, individual who uh, um, made not only bags but clothes and fashion designer uh, on an airplane port uh, or first first class basically first class on an airplane and he, she he noticed her problems carrying all her uh feminine items that she would want to carry like makeup and whatnot especially being an actress and model and uh he developed the birkin bag uh gave her the first one and named it after her and now 30 something years later the birkin bag is well known everybody has them and yet um where did the term come from it came from this actress um so yeah my personal favorite actress in the film happened to be uh the the person that played the French teacher uh, uh, that would be uh the actress doris coonsman and uh, I just thought her uh role was one of the more ambiguous roles uh because as a who done it, uh, I thought uh, she played hers the best um, because there were, is a number of red herrings in the film. And some of them are more obvious than not. Uh, there is a couple of interesting twists that are really cool. Uh, but uh, Doris Koonsmann, uh she actually is a German actress that has appeared in numerous uh, films. Uh, one of her more notable films of recent years was the film Funny Games, the original uh, German language one by Michael Haneke, the, the Oscar Award nominated uh, director. Uh, she actually plays a small role as one of the neighbors uh, in the film. Uh, I believe she played the, the, the neighbor um, that lived on the other side of uh, the lake. But uh, no matter. Uh, that's just some uh, interesting trivia, I thought. Um, but either way, uh, this film is a pretty solid horror, uh, gothic tale. Uh, the set pieces are pretty damn good for the seven cat seven deaths in the cats eye because it is uh an old castle there's uh interesting uh, gargoyles which they call chimera's here which is the, the the monster from uh uh southern european mythology um so there's a lot a lot of really cool aspects there's, there's uh a churchyard which basically means a grave a cemetery on premise and um that's where uh, so a lot of the film takes place um, and there are other things of note that are kind of creepy like rats and and i uh, think cobwebs and and so forth um i would i would say that uh if you go into this film thinking more hammer like then you're going to like this film so make sure you go in with those expectations and do not uh, go in thinking it is a slasher or what the Italians would call Giallo. Uh, so, yeah, that's the review for Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye, uh, released by Blue Underground in October of 2005. Uh, it has not been upgraded to Blu-ray yet, but uh, the, the disc is pretty, pretty good. It has an interview with uh, the screenwriter uh, Giovanni Simonelli and also um, a little uh, interview with the director talking about how he was called uh, Andrew M. Uh, Dawson. Um, and uh, the last thing I probably would want to just bring up before uh, we get uh, to the next uh, segment would be uh, a little bit about the screenwriter. And that would simply be he wrote a number of uh, genre uh, scripts, but uh, one interesting one that uh, folks may be curious about is he wrote the screenplay for Lucio Fulce's *Cat in the Brain*, which has um, been completely remastered by Grindhouse uh, releasing. So, uh, so even though you may not know who many of these folks are by name, uh, a lot of well-known people. Uh, in the Italian and continental horror um, film industry, we uh, were behind this film Seven Deaths in the Cat's Eye. Ah. Okay, the film that I am reviewing right now is a 1969 film entitled Camille 2000. Uh, Camille 2000 is not a horror film. However, it is an exploitation film. Some would even say it's a sexploitation film. It is a film directed by a pretty famous uh, cult And midnight movie director named Redley or Radley Metzger. Radley Metzger, uh, folks may know some of his other titles, such as The Licorice Quartet or Score, uh, fairly uh, well known films for uh, the midnight movie crowd or cult cinema fans. Uh, This film here, Camille 2000, uh, was actually um, one of uh, three films, including The Licorice Quartet and and school that were actually uh, done in uh, Europe. Uh, Southern Europe are uh, the Balkans. Um, Balkans meaning uh, Croatia uh, and, and uh, nati- nations um, down in the Adriatic Sea. Uh, basically, uh, he went to Europe uh, because you could get more money for some of his productions. And uh, Camille 2000 was the first of... Um, of uh, importance out of these three films that I just named Camille 2000, Licorice Quartet, and Score. Um, the film actually um, takes place or appears to take place in Rome, even though some of the movie posters actually show the Eiffel Tower in the background, uh, which um, is a bit odd because I, I know it was filmed in Italy. And um most of the reviews that I've read or blogs that I've read about the film made it sound as if it wasn't um, based in Italy or specifically Rome um, now uh, let me read uh, the summary on uh on the film uh, quick review that you can find on uh, most places such as wikipedia or i m d and so forth and uh, it basically says Marguerite, a beautiful woman of affairs falls for the young and promising Armand but sacrifices her love for him for the sake of his future and reputation Uh, before I get into further details let me give a a little background about the film Um, so uh, some of the blogs that I've read even though there's no real specifics in the film that states this may be the case but it appears that it's almost like an alternate uh, universe that this film takes place in. In other words, it's, it's supposed to be filmed in 1969, but it, some places state that it was kind of a film that takes place in the future from 1969 or an alternate uh, timeline. So you have um, a group of uh, jet-setter folk who seem to... Um, Live in in the typical 1969 look, uh, like the mods. Uh, for example, if folks who don't know what a mod is, uh, that would be what you would see in uh, the very beginning of the Austin Powers films. The, the weird colors, the the beehive hairdo, the shirt dresses, uh, the miniskirts, um, colors like orange, pink, um, uh, cyan, indigo, whatnot. Uh, very fluorescent looking. Folk. So, rather than the hippie look, they were more um, uh, this look, which is called mod. And um, the most most of the the characters here are supposed to be jet set, as I I stated. And uh, as a result, uh, this alternate reality um, has no uh, other folks, no people that are. you know, a different class system, so everybody's pretty much wealthy in this film. Um, I did read uh, from Radley Metzger himself, uh, the director, that he stated that was intentional because uh, to keep a story moving, it was always easy to put uh, all his characters as wealthy or jet-setters because then you didn't have to have the mundane 9-to-5 uh, part of a person's life interfere with the story. So make all the people wealthy, make all the people jet-setters, and then guess what? Uh, You can avoid uh, the mundane parts of everyday life and just simply focus on the story at hand, uh, which is the story of basically uh, this character Marguerite and um, the man uh, Ahmad, among a number of uh, other interesting uh, folk that uh, reside around them. Uh, The thing that, that... makes this uh, interesting is most specifically the mod look Uh, uh, I bought this in a box set a three movie box set with uh, score and licorice quartet um, off of Amazon and it is uh, from Cult Epics um, the remastering and all that and uh, if you buy the box set it's called Bradley Metzger's Erotica Psychedelic and it's a pretty good deal because it's only uh, $28 for Three films, so that's uh, just over $9 per film. And uh, if you buy each of these films individually, they're uh, $25 a piece on Blu-ray. Now, there's one uh, issue with this. Um, They do sell uh, the movies um, individually. Uh, For example, Camille 2000... um, the blu-ray there's a director's cut and an extended cut and the extended cut is actually about 12 to 15 minutes longer and unfortunately the box set only includes the uh, director's cut uh, without the the 12 minutes added. Um, Now the director's cut is arguably a misnomer and the reason I say that is specifically because the film was uh, filmed with all um, two hours and 13 minutes, and then what happened was, is the film was released to various countries in various forms, from an hour and 30 minutes all the way to the possibly the two hour and 15 minute uh, length, or two hour and 13 minute length. Um, so there really, arguably, is no true quote unquote director's cut. Um, in a sense, though, Ratley, Bradley Bradley uh, Metzger did participate in the remastering. Um, of these films with uh, the, the production company or boutique disc company uh, cult epics um, so I'm, I'm only uh, talking of the the uh, director's cut rather than the extended cut um, now uh, basically what happens is it, is basically these, this, this woman. Um, oh, Well, actually, before you even go on that, let me, let me explain where the story came from. Uh, this is actually a modern retelling of a tale by Alexandra Dumas, um, the novel La Dame au Camille, uh, from an, an 1852 novel. Uh, I believe Alexandra Dumas is the son of the the more famous Dumas who wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables and so forth. So, uh, this is his son. He wrote this novel in 1852 uh, about a courtesan who's dying of tuberculosis. Uh, basically, since she knows she's dying, she doesn't want to um, lead on this, this uh, suitor. Um, and so, she's kind of somewhat mean to him to try to get rid of him. And, uh, is uh, a lot of um, uh, political things that go on, uh, based around um, various suitors and whatnot. Uh, here, this is an updated version. takes place in the postmodern era, so post 1969 when it was filmed, uh, and uh, so you have all these psychedelic type of uh, things. Uh, there's there's some really cool set pieces. Uh, the music. Um, and that I have to specifically state. So whether, whether you think this movie is any good or not, uh, it does have one thing really going for it. And I know uh, a number of listeners to the Dark Discussions podcast love soundtracks to uh, cult films. Uh, this soundtrack, uh, the f- the music is by a guy named Piero Piccioni Pis- And um, you can find it, um, Camille2000, uh, Chain of Love is uh, one one of the uh, songs from the soundtrack that's just absolutely phenomenal it's got an organ and jazz sound uh, that rocks Um, so uh, I recommend uh, the box set that I just mentioned uh, the Radley Metzger erotica psychedelic set includes the soundtrack for the films the three films that are included so uh not only do you get the three films but you get the soundtrack as well however you can find the soundtrack pretty much everywhere including uh youtube uh so just go and search for uh chains of love camille 2000 and uh, you can get the general idea of uh, the film um so what what you got is a film that has um this guy that moves to rome uh, he's shown around at the parties, and uh, there's dozens of beautiful women, and he falls for this woman named Marguerite. Um, Marguerite is what we would call uh, a f- uh, liberated woman, so she uh, yeah, she um, sleeps around. And yet she kind of does fall for this guy, and there are numerous set pieces that include a acid party. Um, there, there's, a, a pool party. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. It, it reminded me of oddly, um, the film La Dolce Vita and the film beyond the Valley of the Dolls. So think of La Dolce Vita with, um, a more hard R rating. Um, and, um, a film that, that uh, is crazy, like uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And uh, oddly, uh, Roger Ebert, who wrote the screenplay for the Russ Meyer film, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, actually did not like Camille 2000. He, he actually considered it one of the worst films that he's ever saw. And even in 2005, he uh, wrote up a list of like 60 films he didn't like from different genres. And uh, this film was still listed. Uh, in 2005, it was a film he didn't like. Uh, however, take that with a grain of salt, because first off, he wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and this film is fairly similar to that. And also, on the same list, he wrote The Usual Suspects as one of the worst 60 films he had ever reviewed, and that, that of course, is, is bogus. Um, so, uh, would I recommend this film? Well, um, if you like... Uh, the 1960s f- theme films with with like the acid parties, the the jet setters, the the cool uh, 60s outfits, hairdos, music, all that. Uh, this film rocks. It's absolutely fantastic uh, if it's looked that way. Um, I mean, I I put the film in knowing nothing about it, and within the first five minutes, I was saying, "Oh yeah, this movie's going to be awesome" because it's got um the music cranking and uh has an awesome set piece where you get these four people two couples um hanging out on these huge steps outside in the middle of the summer and and they're they're uh, doing drugs and whatever so it's it's definitely um the alternate lifestyle type stuff that you would want to see in a cult film um and and that it, it starts off uh with a bang um but there is one area in the film that when it leaves the Rome area um, where the two characters decide to make a go of it, they leave the city and head to um, the coast. And when they do so, um, it slows down considerably at that point. Uh, so there, there's some moments that unfortunately do drag, um, which which is somewhat unfortunate. Um, but After this 15-minute interlude that, unfortunately, is a bit too slow. There's some montages and and things of that nature. And then um, a character comes and and tries to force the breakup of these two uh, leads. Um, They head back to um, Rome. And the last 30 minutes of the film um, just cranks again. So uh, um, great set pieces. Uh, parties, rock and roll, jazz, drugs, um, nudity, whatever you, you know, you you name it. For a, a cult film, Forty Second Street, uh, midnight film, um, it's got it, and it also has an art art house feel to it. Um, so it's it's a really good film, depending on your tastes. So if you're not into, um, the, I guess films that are more exploitation um, probably maybe not for you but um, it is a high recommend by me because even if the screenplay does have some weak spots in it uh, the atmosphere and what um, is shown on screen um, gives this film a high recommend by me Um, once again you can buy the set for um under 30 bucks three films plus the soundtrack you know that's a steal and then uh, if you prefer you can go out and buy the, the disc itself as an individual where you can actually get the extended disc but unfortunately it goes for 25 dollars, and it's just for the one film that is camille 2000 uh one thing you're probably asking is uh who, some of the stars and things well uh First off, the title, Camille 2000, obviously it comes back to the original source material of the novel, uh, the, the name Camille. However, there's really no one named Camille in the film. And 2000, I could not find anywhere. I did numerous searches on the internet for what it meant. And all I can find is that maybe that was a reference to the futuristic... Uh, alternate timeline that this film um, tries to follow. Um, Now the actress that leads is uh, Danielle Gobert, Gobert. Uh, she's a French actress Uh, she had a pretty good career in the late 50s throughout the 60s, Um, then she got married to a guy named uh, Trujillo, Trujillo uh, was the son of the Dominican Republic dictator um, so for a few years there she uh, disappeared from uh, film, but when she divorced him, she went back into uh, films, and uh, this was her uh, comeback film. Uh, and then she did a number of films up until 1972, I believe, where she retired from cinema for good, and uh, because she ma- got married to a ski champion, some some professional skier named Jean-Claude Killy um, and she had a a child, a daughter, and then um, left show business forever. Uh, However, she died in the early 80s of some sort of cancer at the age of 44. I do not know if this has anything to do with her lifestyle. I couldn't find much about her lifestyle, though I did read in a little uh, booklet that comes in the box set uh, she may have been uh, a bit of a wild one and and that it may have had something to do with um, her, her unfortunate demise at such a young age. Um, another individual, uh, the guy that plays Armand, is a guy named Nino Castelnuovo, an uh, Italian actor that was in numerous giallos and genre slasher-type films of the 70s, uh, including uh, one of the more prominent ones, Uh, called Strip Nude for Your Lover, which was, I believe, directed by well-known cult and genre and horror director Andrea Bianchi. Um, So uh, he had some note. uh, This actor, uh, Nino Castelnuovo, had some note in uh, some European horror films. Uh, One other actress of note I did want to bring up uh, from this film here, though her career uh, didn't seem to expand large I couldn't find too much about her but she had one of the leading roles in uh, the Licorice Quartet uh, which I have not seen yet but um, she um, had a pretty important role in this film here her name is Silvana Venturelli um, and uh, she has a leading role in the Licorice Quartet uh, which I have not seen yet Um, and she plays the the femme Fatel in this film here um, and uh, a major 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 piece of, of uh, Camille 2000 uh, so on the Blu-ray itself uh, there is a number of extras uh, of significance that make it uh, a really good loaded disc uh, first off the it, it is a newly remastered high-definition transfer uh, both uh, the one in the box set that I have as well as the extended cut Edition that you can buy separately. Uh, that is, uh, Radley Metzger um, actually uh, participated, so it's a it's a, so, something that he supports. Um, also on the disc is on the set of Camille 2000, a good over an hour documentary, or or I should say behind the scenes type thing about the movie. Uh, the restoration of Camille 2000, which is a uh, another long. Uh, extra uh, over a half hour anyway of um uh the film and its restoration and talking about the various cuts of the film as i said it was an hour and a half to two hours and 15 minutes uh depending on what nation you saw the film in uh then there's two alternate scenes sylvain's bear striptease a uh, different take of that which is uh a scene that happens in one of uh, the parties actually I think the first party that occurs in the film uh, which sets up uh, who these people are and and so forth as you can see uh, they're definitely jet-setting hedonists Uh, and then there's the Cube love scene which is uh, one of the cool sets uh, with all these mirrors and whatnot Um, there's a scene where uh, the two lead characters uh, hook up for the first time this is an alternate take Uh, there's other outtakes uh, for the film there's an audio commentary track Uh, with Radley Metzger uh, discussing the film with the moderator, uh, and then, of course, the theatrical trailers. Uh, One way to find these discs easier, um, because it's sometimes hard to find them on Amazon. I've done searches, and it's been difficult to to actually pull them up. Uh, So you can always go to cultepics.com, type in uh, simply their search button on um, that page, M-E-T-Z-G-E-R, Uh, So the director's last name. And then it pops up uh, the box set as well as the four, the three films individually. And uh, if you go to the pages, there's links to buy. And it actually doesn't uh, bring you to a purchase there, but it sends you right to Amazon to the page on Amazon where you can find these discs. And I did notice that um, some of the third parties that sell these discs actually sell them for uh, cheaper. So uh, that's how I bought... Um, The box set for $29, I bought it from a third party uh, because uh, the retail price is, I think, like $59.99. And individual discs, as I said, sometimes are $25, but if you go to a third party, you can get them for up to even $11 uh, new. So just do your research there, but go to cultepics.com, to the search box, type in metzge and it brings up the box set as well as the three films individually with links directly to Amazon. Um, so that's pretty much uh, the review for this. I didn't really get into much detail because um, it's, it's a film that you have to see and, and honestly, the plot, though a significant plot, an interesting plot, uh, the thing that makes this film great is the atmosphere um, and the music uh, combined. Um, and of course being a exploitation midnight film loads and loads of beautiful naked women. if that is your thing. So uh, that's the review of Camille 2000 and I would recommend uh, the cult epics edition. If you don't care about extras or you aren't a physical media person you can find these on VOD at your regular services so uh, Camille 2000 can be watched or purchased on VOD. Uh, So, yeah, that's the Camille 2000 in my review, and uh, um, definitely worth checking out. Uh, The film that I'm going to review now is called Don't Open Till Christmas. So... As you can gather, based off of the title of the film, it is most certainly a horror-themed Christmas movie, and um, it's an interesting film for a lot of reasons, like most of these midnight films, but uh, uh, first off, I'd like to talk about um, who produces it, or I should say what what um, boutique DVD company uh, releases it, and... Um, how it looks and so forth. Uh, Don't open till Christmas. Uh, was released by Mondo Macabro. It's uh, another uh, company. This one's out of England. I've mentioned it before on the prior uh, episode of Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews, Volume One. Um, it was released by them December 2011. Uh, so it's a at this point a uh, six-year-old release it's a 84-minute film Um, this is the unrated version Uh, so it's uh, anything that had been cut out in prior uh, theatrical releases everything is put back Uh, it is available from their website Mondo McCarbrough's website uh, but you can also get it at regular places such as Amazon, and it's a fairly inexpensive disc, $14.99. I actually just purchased it um, right after Christmas 2016 uh, because I was worried, like, um, some of their other uh, releases, Mondo Macabro* other releases have gone out of print. Um, the rights to to release the film has reverted back to the original owners of films, so i didn 't want uh, to miss out on this film, especially after I discovered that this film was by the same producers of the Spanish horror film pieces um, so before we talk about the stuff behind the film and who 's in it and all those things and um, where it was filmed and whatnot um I'll read the back jacket of the film, uh, and this is what it has to say. Um, Fourteen unforgettable kills, the ultimate festive slasher. It's Christmas time in London, the season of goodwill to all men, a time for celebration, a time for family, a time for presents. This year, it's also the time for a masked maniac to be let loose on the streets. His intended victims are chosen at random, but they have one thing in common. They are dressed in the flowing white beard and bright red robes of Santa Claus. The killer selects different methods to fulfill this grisly task. One, Santa has his throat cut. Another is axed to death. A third is held face down in a red hot grill. A fourth is castrated And left to die. The police are baffled as the horrific death toll rises. 14 corpses and only three killing days left until Christmas. So uh, this is a a slasher film for sure. Um, It's in uh, the mode of uh, 80s horror. So 80s slashers. Uh, It's... Has some curiosities to it, and we'll get into that in a moment, but uh, let's talk about the story itself. Uh, Basically, it has a large ensemble cast of folk. Um, There's a girl, her name happens to be Kate, and you could argue that she is the uh, lead of the film, though uh, it does switch to numerous people throughout the film who are probably as important as her character what occurs is the second death of the film or i should say the third death of the film um, happens to include her father dressed as santa claus so that's why she becomes important to the plot uh the, the this film within i think 15 minutes of the film there is so many deaths um for a slasher film, uh it has a pretty high uh, body count, as said on the back jacket of, of this film 14 kills and I would say that is correct um, the f- kills are pretty pretty good if you for for slashers in the eighties um, so anyway, uh Kate and her boyfriend Cliff are the nominal leads in a sense there is a police inspector. Uh, basically named um, Ian Harris. And he is played by uh, 1940s and 50s uh, Hollywood star Edmund Perdom. And uh, he obviously is doing the investigation behind the death of Kate's father as well as uh, numerous other murders. Uh, The main thing happens to be that these murders are of people dressed as santa claus uh whether they're just walking around town in in festive spirits whether they're salvation army type uh people that are dressed as santa or whatnot uh these folks are being killed along with their girlfriends in some cases or their companions who just happen to be uh with them during the murders uh also of note is a person that um uh, basically a, a news reporter uh, his name happens to be Giles Harrison um, and he's uh, trying to you know, get information to uh, interview folk and whatnot uh, and then there are numerous other peripheral characters including uh, victims as well as survivors uh, one of the survivors happens to be um, a pinup girl or a cheesecake model named Sharon um, who actually is dressed as a Santa Claus uh, outfit to do photo shoots um, on the streets of London. And uh, she happens to survive because they find out, uh, or the murderer happens to find out that she is not uh, a man. It's actually a woman dressed as Santa Claus. Uh, so, so there's a lot of uh, things that happen. Uh, there's one scene where uh, Santa Claus happens to go into... Um, a a strip booth uh you know the girl behind the glass type of thing um and the the girl behind the glass becomes uh one of the lead characters as well so the perspective of the lead changes from kate to sharon uh to the girl behind the glass to uh, the inspector to the news reporter and so forth there's also uh, a cameo by actress carolyn Monroe, who plays herself, uh, she basically is doing a, a song routine on stage um, in, in the Art District of London, where uh, one of the people dressed in Santa Claus happens to get murdered. Uh, so uh, the film uh, has some uh, pretty important people in the cast among Edmund Perdom uh and uh another actor of of note alan lake who used to be married to deanna doors uh prior to her death she actually died during filming of this film of old age and at that point uh alan lake after this film was finished actually suicided uh in despair that he lost his uh, beloved wife uh though alan lake was also known to unfortunately have um some substance abuse issues Uh, And and when he um, took his life, uh, it was well known that he had some problems. Um, The film is actually uh, directed by Edmund Perdom as well. However, uh, he was removed from the direction by the the producers of the film uh, sometime during the shoot, uh, though he kept uh, his lead as the inspector. Um, And the director that came in to replace him was uh interesting enough uh alan birkinshaw uh alan birkinshaw was the director of a film called killer's moon which i reviewed in episode one of halloween boutique psychotronic reviews volume one uh so folks can go check that out if they would like uh so uh the film um not only was was uh uncredited directed by alan birkinshaw but he Uh, co-wrote the film with a guy named Derek Ford, who was a well-known English screenwriter of sex comedies and things of that nature back in uh, the 70s. And unfortunately, uh, just like uh, Alan Lake, uh, he also had some issues with um, substance abuses and so forth. So uh, they had to bring in Alan Birkinshaw to work on the film as well as a writer um so as you can gather because of the numerous hands in both the screenwriting and the direction there is some disjointedness to the film uh though i would like to state that this disjointedness works tremendously to uh help the film and the reason i say that is because there is more characters Um, more people to focus on, you don't know who is the killer, Um, the characters' perspectives change, so the nominal lead isn't necessarily going to be the survivor girl you would see in a slasher, so uh, as a result, um, the film had me guessing what and who the killer was going to be and what he was going to do next. Uh, so I actually thought it was a very positive thing that this, this film doesn't have a straight A to Z plot and instead is um, mixed with numerous additional kills that were added to the film by director Alan Birkinshaw um, during its production. Uh, and I think that worked tremendously. Um, another thing of interest is the producers of the film because the producers are pretty important uh, because they actually are fairly well known in midnight cinema or horror cinema just for the fact that many of their films have become cult classics. Um, the two folks that produce this film are um, uh, Dick Randall and Stephen Manesian. Uh, basically, Dick Randall... Uh, is the more well-known folk, but Stephen Manesian worked closely with him pretty much their their whole the whole time of, in their career. Uh, Dick Randall, you could argue, is another version of a Roger Carman. Uh He actually used to write things uh, for Milton Burrow. Uh, comedy sketches and such and then he became a distributor and then finally a producer of motion pictures and uh, he worked a lot in Europe because uh, he was able to get more money over in Europe Um, and some of his films of note uh, they're pretty big name films for um, the the horror genre uh, and a lot of them have been re-released and remastered recently to a disc Uh, some of the films of note um he did king of kong island a 1968 monster film he did crocodile a 1979 monster film uh, he did uh, the really good uh italian but american directed film the girl in room 2a which uh, you can actually get um from mondo macabro uh, and it's a, it's a damn good film Uh, He did The French Sex Murders, which uh, I believe Anita Ekberg had a a small role in that. And that uh, was also released by Mondo Macabre, but unfortunately is now out of print, though The Girl in Room 2A is still available. Uh, He did a number of kung fu films, and I believe some of them were were Bruce Lee films, but uh, I would have to do further research. I didn't really go into um, note to discover that, but a lot of kung fu films. uh, Some of them uh, were, were fairly well-known on 42nd Street. Um, other films that he did was Death Dimension, uh, For Your Height Only, which is a, a spoof um, spy film. Uh, he did a number of uh, manual films, uh, which were exploitation films, Emanuel uh, 3, The Daughter of Emmanuel. Uh, He did a a sexploitation film called Erotic Adventures of Robinson Crusoe. And then he did Don't Open Till Christmas, which is the film I'm reviewing here. Slaughter High, which is a well-known slasher film. But his most famous film, you could argue, is Pieces, which uh, has had an excellent remastering on Blu-ray by Grindhouse Releasing. And uh, is a high recommend by me if you like uh 80s slasher f- crazy films uh pieces is, is a standout and the disc that was released by uh, grindhouse releasing specifically the blu-ray is phenomenal uh maybe one day i'll talk about that but uh, it has some really good extras including a, a documentary of uh genre cinema um another film that he did was uh, the living doll which is uh one of his later films uh, He he died uh in 19 19- ninety six um, as I, I mentioned uh, some of the actors Alan Lake and Edmund Perdom. Uh another interesting actor uh, in this film was pat astley pat astley um, she is a, is a woman an actress. she actually uh, plays the cheesecake model in the film and uh, so she basically supplies uh, the the nudity in the film but uh, her career is a well note of well interest um because she was in are you being served for about uh, a season or two seasons of that show which is a, a comedy british show from the 70s uh but eventually she was let go because they found out that she had done some uh blue films prior and back in the 60s prior to uh getting the role in uh are you being served But she was also in a number of uh, sex comedies and arguably one of the most successful um, uh, exploitation films ever in um, British cinema called Come Play With Me. And that film um, was one of the longest playing films ever in Britain. Um, But uh, Don't Open Till Christmas. She was 33 at the time, and this was her last film before she retired. And... um, uh, became a private citizen. Um, an interesting thing, though, you can actually see her um, in a documentary that just came out last year called uh, Respectable, The Mary Millington Story, uh, which is uh, a hour-and-a-half documentary which is actually now free on Netflix uh, about actress mary millington uh, exploitation actress mary millington uh who actually was a co-star of pat uh astley and come play with me um it's actually a really good documentary uh, if you like um uh, 70s exploitation cinema especially in britain um which i'm not a fan of necessarily but uh i was interested in the documentary and and i, I watched it when i saw a pop-up on my netflix account and it's a really good documentary I uh, high recommend and um one thing that's interesting more six degrees of separation is that pat astley when she um ha- happened to be in come play with me and uh was seen in this documentary respectable the mary millington uh story um where she's on camera um t- talking about mary millington one of the interesting uh characters that played a part in the mary millington story happened to be alan lake uh because mary millington happened to be good friends with uh deanna doors and alan lake was the husband of deanna doors uh so uh pat astley happens to uh, talk about uh, come play with me and mary millington in that documentary uh but no matter, that's a, a side point and of interest. But if you're a fan of Pat Astley, um, from her work uh, on the te- television show Are You Being Served, as well as her various roles in horror and exploitation film, uh, you can see her in Respectable, a Mary Millington story. Um, now, back to uh, Don't Open Till Christmas. Um, I, I said that uh, the story, because of uh, the numerous hands in the uh in in the film uh working on the film that it seems a little bit uh different than most slashes. Uh absolutely uh some of the kills are, are unbelievable. The one with the grill is, is just crazy. Um but there's a, a twist at the end that isn't necessarily um uh awesome but um it uh was a surprise. And um, the film uh, Who dies is completely shocking and surprising uh people who you won't think would die do die and people who you think will die will not and uh there's even some that are unanswered whether or not um they they do die and so i I thought i thought it was pretty solid and um I'm glad I picked up the disc Uh, again it was pretty cheap $14.99 and it has great extras on it I mean fantastic extras there's a 52-minute making of documentary and it's not one of those typical making of where it's basically just um, uh, outtakes and um, someone filming the director filming it's actually they talk about the film they discuss what happened and how uh, there was changes to um the director and changes to the actress so for example the girl behind the glass actress was changed twice um and the girl that finally is the lead uh or or has that part in the film actually has a pretty big role so so there's a lot of things that this documentary talks about it's it's fantastic uh there's also a, an excellent documentary about producer dick randall and um his work uh that's about 30 or so minutes um so i would h- highly recommend if you like uh, extras this is uh, this is a great one there's also um trailers and uh, pro- production notes and i did read the production notes uh, so it's like a 20 uh screen uh production note um uh on 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 t- on disc Production note that you, you scroll through uh, pressing the next button um, on your remote uh, so for extras it's fantastic uh, the print is great um, it was cool to see um, uh, Carolyn Monroe in, in a part where she has 80s hairstyle it's kind of funny um, it was during the same period where she worked with uh, Joe Spinell and maniac um, the both documentaries were great. Uh, it was cool to see Pat Astley uh, having just seen um, over the summer of 2016 the documentary uh, Res- "Respectable," the Mary Millington uh, story, which uh, is still on Netflix. I, I just uh, rewatched it the other day when I found out Pat Astley was in this film here. Don't open till Christmas, and that she had uh, did uh, interviews. Uh, on camera for that documentary um it it is uh one of their i, I don't know if it's we would consider it older but it is a, like i said a six-year-old released by mondo Macabro now uh but they did obviously lose the rights to uh the french sex murders disc uh they don't release that anymore so um when i found out that dick randall a dick randall film is not in print anymore by Mondo Macabro. I quickly went and got this one, especially with uh, all the new um, remasterings of Christmas horror films like Jack Frost by Vinner Syndrome. I decided to watch a couple, and um, since uh, Dick Randall's other film by Mondo Macabro has been um, out of print, I didn't want to uh, miss the chance of uh, seeing this film. So if you're into uh, crazy Uh, 80 slashers and if you liked uh, Pieces uh, another Randall film uh, this film is definitely a film you should check out and uh, I will uh, add it to my yearly December horror film watch list for sure. Uh, High recommend and uh, I, I liked it a lot. Okay, the next film that I am going to do a review on is a film from 1973 entitled The Demons. Uh, this film uh, should not be confused with the Italian production uh, by uh, produced by Dario Argento from the 80s. Uh, however, this is actually a 1973 film from Spain, or at least the director is from Spain, Uh, But the film is directed by Jess Franco, uh, who actually uh, I spoke about since I reviewed two of his films in the prior Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews, Volume 001, uh, where he worked with numerous producers throughout Europe. Uh, For example, uh, some of his uh, late 60s work were with... uh, Harry Allen Towers, who um, was a British production uh, or or owner of a British production company, um, basically worked with uh, Christopher Lee. And so, Jess Franco happened to do a number of films for him, uh, such as The Bloody Judge and uh, Justine and Eugenie and uh, the Fu Manchu films and so forth. Uh, then of, in the late 80s, uh, or I should say the late 70s and early 80s, he worked for Edwin Dietrich, a Swiss uh, production company. However, uh, between those two folks, uh, he did a number of films for a guy named Robert de Nessel. Uh, he's a, actually a French uh, Frenchman that owned a French company, Uh, called CFPC and uh, he and Franco did numerous films actually mostly shot in Portugal Uh, so during the Salazar regime in Portugal uh, because they were uh, um, trying to produce a lot of films there just as in uh, Spain where uh, General Franco uh, no relations to Jess Franco um ruled spain at the time and a lot of productions were made in spain as well uh... so for example uh... the two uh... worked on a number of films including a virgin among the living dead sinner the secret diary of a nymphomaniac which i actually reviewed in the last episode um... Launer, the exorcist um, the perverse countess uh... among others and um Though this film here is linked to other producers as well. Um, Most folks believe that De Nessel was the real person behind uh, the film. Uh, The other producers listed were Victor Costa and Arturo Marcos. Um, Now, uh, this film has an interesting history because um, when films that do well or are well-known, um, you know, make a lot of money and whatnot, a lot of other lower-budget production companies uh, try to follow suit. And just as uh, today we have Asylum and the Sci-Fi Network and whatnot that try to follow uh, popular genre films with uh, knockoffs, uh, this film here is technically somewhat considered a knockoff of a film from 1971 in the UK, entitled The Devils, uh, directed by uh, the late great Ken Russell and starring the late great Oliver Reed as well as Vanessa Redgrave. Um, basically, that film is a play on uh, murderers murdering or executing uh, witches uh, from the Middle Ages. Uh, That film, The Devils, actually takes place in France, and uh, there's no supernatural elements. Uh, It's just basically uh, people being charged with witchcraft or devil-worshipping or whatnot who are executed at the stake because uh, of um, power struggles and whatnot. Um, Well-received film and arguably very controversial film. Um, This film here, the, The Demons, is a knockoff technically on that film um it has a fairly well-known b-film cast anyway for, for folks who know european uh, specifically continental european actors from this era um so it stars such folks as uh ann libert Britt nichols karen field and howard vernon uh will probably be the four biggest names, and then uh, the French actor Sahengur Ghaffari as well, uh, among a few others. Um, uh, So, uh, what uh, was confusing about this film is is a lot of these films uh, come out in Europe back in the day and were an international cast, and so uh, all the films were done in the actors' regular language and then everybody was just dubbed over after the fact so during production one person may be speaking Portuguese another person may be speaking English and a third person in the same scene could be speaking Italian but those tracks are pretty much um, removed and a new dub track is put on top either in English or French or Spanish or Italian, or whatnot, and then released to the general countries either uh, dubbed or dubbed with subtitles. Um, This film here presented by uh, the English production company uh, Redemption. It's a boutique company out of uh, the UK who has released numerous films by uh, Jess Franco as well as other um, cult directors such as Jean Rollin, um, and as I re- reviewed in last week's, uh, or I should say last uh, episode, uh, Alan Birkishar, the British director, uh, and so forth. Um, this this film here um, is actually uh, fairly long for. Uh, a genre film it is actually two hours so when i put it in i was actually surprised to see that because a lot of genre films are usually uh, hour and 20 minutes to an hour and 35 minutes especially during this time frame in the 70s and 80s so i was afraid it was going to be a pretty boring and long film uh, but let me read uh, the back jacket of the film uh, or at least on the, the redemption blu-ray uh, in the wake of the massive controversy surrounding Ken Russell's The Devils, several filmmakers rushed to create their own Inquisition horror films inspired by the true story of satanic possession at the convent of Loudoun in France. Uh, the Demons, or Les Demons, is Jess Franco's stellar entry in the nunsploitation canon with a degree of sadism and sexual explicitness that overshadows its competitors, while being burned at the stake, an accused which curses the principal witchfinder and his minions, as a result, members of royalty in the religious establishment are caused to suffer, or, some might say, enjoy a series of human depravities. Franco-Photographer's the scenes of torture, sex, and the demon possession with a sense of tenderness that is both aesthetically pleasing and deeply unsettling. Previously released on video in the US, the Redemption Edition represents the complete, unscented version of the film. Um, and to add to that, um, it is uh, fully remastered as well. Uh, this film, like many uh, films, were picked up by various. Um, distribution companies and they were butchered uh, so you could have prints from an hour and 20 minutes all the way to the uh, full film which is two hours Um, this here is the actual full motion picture. Um, Now some of the things about the back cover what it says, um, this here uh, is somewhat not necessarily correct uh, it says demon possession I, I wouldn't necessarily say that there was actually demon possession in this film and i will also state that um uh it is uh partly actually i guess a non-exploitation film um what a non-exploitation films are uh at least the first 30 to 40 minutes of this film you could uh say that it is part of that subgenre of genre and horror films to give a quick idea of what a exploitation film is defined as, it's basically a film of uh, nuns, women, who are locked away in generally isolated uh, convents or uh, uh, things of that nature where things of um, either supernatural possessions, uh, suppression of human rights, uh, sexual suppression, um, violence uh, against uh, underlings, things of that nature. And uh, a lot of folks can k- sometimes throw non-sploitation films in with uh, women in prison films or even uh, how uh, the sub-genre not sploitation films also were doing things back in those days as well in the 1970s and early 80s Um, so that kind of explains how this film is set up at the beginning anyway Um, but as uh, stated earlier as well as in the back of the film we have witches and uh, a lot of these type of films also take place in the middle ages as well as uh, during uh, the dark ages where uh, witchcraft if not believed it was at least used as a way to eliminate folks' enemies. Uh, Almost how uh, people were eliminated uh, by political reasons, Uh, just tag someone as a witch, and there you go. You get rid of a person that is danger to you as a leader, Uh, whether it is danger to the church or danger to the government, or danger to anything, corporation, whatnot. So um, this film follows that suit. Now, uh, before I go into the uh, review of the film, uh, let's talk about some of the folks who are uh, in front of the camera. Uh, I basically mentioned uh, the producer and the writer slash director, which is Jess Franco, um, and. Uh, The actors, the specific actors of the film. Um, Well, uh, generally, um, most of the the actresses at this time uh, that were in this film, among most of Franco's films or other uh, B films of this era, um, worked in um, anything from horror, sexploitation, um, uh, sex comedies, uh, things of that nature or just midnight films in general like women in prison films and so forth um, so let's let's set up uh, the characters so basically we have two sisters uh, Kathleen and Margaret played by Anne Liebert and Britt Nichols uh, both Anne Liebert and Britt Nichols are very w- well-known genre actresses of that era um, they have done numerous films Uh, For example, Britt Nichols, who uh, is probably actually the the uh, best-looking woman in the film, um, is a Portuguese actress. Uh, She was in numerous Franco films, uh, as well as other content of horror films. Uh, Some of them are Tombs of the Blind Dead, so one of the Blind Dead films. Uh, A a film called Dracula, Prisoner of Frankenstein. Uh, The Demons. Killer with a Thousand Eyes, uh, another Franco film, The Erotic Rites of Frankenstein, uh, another Franco film, uh, Virgin Among the Living Dead, and so forth. Um, she plays what they would call the Innocent Sister. Um, the Other Sister is played by Anne Liebert who actually plays the sister Kathleen and she actually has been in a number of films as well, Daughter of Dracula, uh, The Demons, as, as we're reviewing here, The Erotic Rights of Frankenstein, Sinner, The Secret Diary of an Nymphomaniac, A Virgin Among the Living Dead. Uh, most of these films are all uh, actually just Franco films, so it appears that she uh, was one of his uh, more used actresses or ones that he uh, brought in uh, whenever he made films. Um, and basically the two sisters are what we would call orphans Uh, at the very beginning of the film there's an execution of a woman who's a witch Uh, she had two daughters uh, young children who are then taken to a convent to live uh, and uh, they become nuns Uh, the two sisters are Hunted down by a a woman called Lady De Winter. So she's an aristocrat. Uh, She's married to the Lord Malcolm De Winter, who played by Howard Vernon. Uh, The actress that plays Lady De Winter is Karen Field. Karen Field, among uh, the other actresses here, have done numerous films for Franco, as well as uh, other uh, films of uh, genre and whatnot. Um, she was in a film called Web of the Spider, uh, Legend of Horror, uh, Return of Shanghai Joe, among others. Um, And so this woman here is hunting these two girls down because when the witch was executed, she said there would be a curse and her ancestors would kill Lady De Winter. So Lady De Winter is searching out for these two girls. These girls are now adults, uh, late teens, early 20s, whatnot, and um, one of them happens to be uh, a virgin and the other happens not to be. Uh, the one that is uh, the Virgin, Margaret, uh, stays behind at the convent while uh, Kathleen is arrested by Lady De Winter to basically be tortured and uh, executed as a witch. And that's the basic setup of your story. Um, there's a subplot, uh, basically. Um, the film's in French, was English subtitles. So originally I thought this was in French, or this was a French film, uh, or took place in France, similar to The Devils. Uh, but then one of the characters uh says they come from france and they say oh that's some distance away but since it was in a french language film at least dubbed in french i assumed then it must be from belgium but that didn't make sense based off of the places they named and i thought maybe it was took place in either spain or portugal because of ches franco and um where he's from and where the film was film which was portugal but again to no avail uh and i finally figured out that it's supposed to be in england so it was a bit bizarre and a bit confusing because it is supposed to be english folk played by non-english actors spoken in french um so that was a little confused but what i did discover based off of some of the background of the subplot that was going on um There's a big thing about King James II, who uh, was the king of England at the time, and he uh, was Catholic, and he was pretty open to religion, but there was a large population of England who did not want uh, to have their country become a Catholic nation, so they tried to overthrow him. That failed. He then had some judges arrest folk and basically purge people and then eventually william the conqueror uh the dutch norman uh, french uh, king or future king of england invaded and married his daughter uh, james's daughter mary and that's where we get the william and Maria um and uh, uh modern england um so that's a subplot and that's the only reason why i finally figured out this was t- supposed to take place and. Uh, England, but either way, um, people are getting uh, arrested for being witches, executed and whatnot. The question is uh, was l- this lady de winter completely insane, and she actually believes that there are witches, or is she just a sadist um, and or vengeful because she wants to eliminate her enemies and or the family of her enemies Uh, her husband is actually uh, played by uh, Howard Vernon the Swiss actor probably best known as the European version of uh, um, uh, the Carradine um, actor that that was in all the B films of in the US uh, because he was in pretty much everything and played the similar roles uh, but, um, he is actually part of the rebellion to overthrow King James II. Uh, so that's the subplot with him. Um, and now the question is, is, is there actually witches or is it similar to, uh, Ken Russell's film, The Devils, where it's just political, um, usage of power to eliminate their enemies? And that's, one of the things in the film that you should find out if you watch it. I won't spoil uh, the the plot otherwise. Now, is it a good film? Um, Actually, to be honest, uh, I actually did enjoy it quite a bit. A lot of times when I'm watching some of these B-films, and if I have my iPad or iPhone or a computer near me, I may wander and start surfing or playing the latest app game while the film is on here i did not do that uh this film actually kept me pretty engrossed uh it was well acted um though you know you you never know with because of dubbing uh but um the, the people that did the dubbing uh did excellent and also the actors and actresses did really good uh there is a twist that determines whether or not this is a supernatural horror film or not um some of the effects obviously aren't going to be great because of um, um, the budget, Um, but uh, generally uh, it was well done and well put together. The story uh, was interesting and it was pretty easy uh, to follow what was going on except for that subplot, and that was only because um, it didn't say anything about it, and if you don't know anything about English history, you could get lost a little bit. Uh, but besides the subplot um, it was pretty easy and since I told you about that subplot you can pretty much understand it so it's basically uh, two girls uh, being hunted down by a woman uh, aristocrat because she wants vengeance on this original witch that is killed at the beginning of the film and is she scared of this quote unquote curse or is it just true vengeance? Uh, her husband on the side is trying to work with other r- r- people who are wealthy that want to overthrow King James II. And then we have um, the judge, and or the witch finder, I guess, and his apprentice who go out searching for um, Kathleen because she happens to uh, be... Uh, let go by somebody and then of course we have her sister Mar Marjorie that w- wants to save her sister and does she have um, anybody that she can get to help her to do it? Um, and that pretty much sets up the whole thing from A to Z and um, if you like those type of films Uh, period piece films uh, costume dramas and epics uh, this film would work Uh, one thing of note there is a ton of nudity in this film so if that offends you uh, probably not the film for you Um, but if it doesn't offend you uh, you get to see um, every woman in the film uh, completely naked and they're all pretty good-looking um, so uh, as a exploitation film as a uh, period piece and as a slow drama slash horror film it works um, so I would recommend this film uh, the Redemption video is pretty damn good uh, as I stated it is the original director's cut of the film uh, pretty well presented uh no defects and it actually has a, a good uh interview with jess franco who has now passed but um later in his life he came back and does a 15 to 20 minute um uh interview on camera interview on the film and um a few other extras as well and uh yeah i recommend uh only other thing i would like to state is that you can find a disc on amazon for sure that's where i bought it uh it's still in print it is still available um it is one of their uh, newer releases in the sense when i say newer i mean last three to four years um so it's not a 10 year old release or eight year old release or whatnot and um if you're a collector of Uh, definitive editions of these old uh, cult films that uh, suddenly reappeared after all these years, this is definitely uh, uh, worth picking up. Um, The disc can range anywhere between $15.99 to $22.99, depending on what day you look, because Amazon seems to put it on sale every often and i actually waited a good many months before i finally was able to get it at i think either 17.99 or 18.99 in united states dollars and um i think it was uh, well worth it it's definitely a film that i will revisit and um it has everything you want from a 1970s midnight movie um uh, a pretty cool plot um blood and boobs and an interesting story that, that kept my attention so uh, I would uh, have you uh, go check it out alright thank you once again to listening to what this podcast is called which is the Halloween Boutique Psychotronic Reviews Volume 2 I uh, hope uh, it was informative. hope there may be one of the six films I reviewed are of interest. And if so, you now know where they are and what they're called and whether or not uh, they're any good. Um, so uh, people can go check that out. If they have questions, they always can email uh, me here at darkdiscussions@aol.com. If there's any uh, films that you know of that you're curious uh, to have reviewed or discussed by me please uh, email me and also always uh, uh, happy to have any feedback to let me know what you the listener thought of the episode uh, so uh, the next episode should be uh, the next month I try to release them every 30 days or so uh, so unlike uh, Dark Discussions which is a weekly podcast this is will most likely be a monthly podcast um could be exceptions but uh, at the moment it's uh, two episodes uh per month uh, and um next one should be in the next 30 days so uh once again thank you very much for listening and uh don't forget to listen to the next episode of dark discussions